This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am talking with Tabitha Forney about paper airplanes. Tabitha writes books to appease the voices in her head. She's a mom, attorney, and yoga devotee who lives in Houston with her three kids and a husband who was on the 85th floor of the North Tower on 9-11 and lived to tell about it. I have known Tabitha, who goes by Toby here for years, and was thrilled to get to chat with her about her book. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we dive in, I want to recommend another podcast to you. If you like thrillers and true crime, try out Killer Content, a podcast hosted by Emily Webb. Here is some more information about it. I actually had to give evidence in a criminal case against Australia's most wanted man, a guy called Raymond John Denning, who had escaped and been on the run for for, uh, 18 months. But he'd rung me two or three times a week while I was working nights for a newspaper. And he had begun to tip me off about certain things he was doing to embarrass the police, never in advance, but always straight afterwards. And it was the making of me as a young journalist. If you're always looking for your next thriller, chiller or whodunit, join me, Emily Webb, for killer content inside the crime writer's mind where I'll be talking to crime-obsessed authors about how they create their characters, their stories, and their crime scenes. Many, many years ago, I did my pharmacy degree, which has proven quite handy when it comes to writing crime fiction, because it sort of gave me that nice scientific underpinning and just understanding of how poisons and physiology and how the body works and things like that. I've had to resist the urge to be a bit like Agatha Christie, who you know, was also a pharmacist, and poison everybody to death. Now, you've got to find some other ways of knocking people off in your novels than just poisoning. Welcome, Toby. How are you today? I'm doing great, Cindy. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be talking with you about this book. I know we have talked about this book for a long time, and so I'm very happy that it is now out in the world and everybody's getting to read it. We have. In fact, I think you might have been my first reader, Cindy. You read a very early draft in 2016, probably way before I should have been showing it to anyone. So thank you for your kindness and your patience over the last five years in seeing this to fruition. Oh, absolutely. I'm not sure I realized I was the very first reader. That's fun. I knew I had been an early reader, and I love that you highlighted that in the copy that I have of your book. It's fun to see it in print, and I'm sure you are so excited, and I can't wait to hear all about the journey. 
Thank you. Yes, I'm thrilled to see Erin's story in print. It's it's an amazing journey, and it's an amazing thing to see your characters and your thoughts and your words going out into the world. It must be. Why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about Paper Airplanes for those that haven't read it? Sure. So Paper Airplanes is a story about 9-11, and it's centered around a woman named Erin O'Connor, who is a young 20-something in New York City, who's just married Daniel, the man of her dreams, about a year before he dies in the towers on September 11th. So I'm not giving anything away. That's kind of the premise of the book is that this is Erin's grief story and also of her story of overcoming that grief. She struggles to get her life back on track after he dies and you know, makes a series of bad decisions and hits rock bottom a few times before coming back and learning how to live again without him. So I have been told that it's a tearjerker and it's difficult to read and it was difficult to write as well, but it is hopeful and ultimately redemptive, I hope. And it's actually stems from a personal story of mine, which is why I wrote it because my husband was on the 85th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center on September 11th. And he managed to escape by coming down 85 flights of stairs and out through the tunnels. But I always wondered, what if? What if, you know, everything that day seemed to turn on random events, like whether or not you took your kid to school or whether you stopped to get your eyeglass prescription and the very narrow line between those who survived and those who didn't. And so it's always like, a what if game in your head when those situations happen. And so this is kind of my what if story. Well, and I think it's wonderful that it came out around the 20th anniversary of September 11th. Yes, that was intentional. I really wanted it to come out around that time. I thought it was just a perfect time to be kind of looking back on those events. And a lot of people, adults, (laughs) were not even alive during that time, obviously. And it's amazing to me because it seems like it wasn't that long ago, but obviously 20 years is a long time and a lot has changed. But I think it's more relevant now than ever. And I still think there's a lot of interest in 9-11. It was a very pivotal moment, not only in my life, but in, in the nation's overall psyche. I think it was a pivotal turning point. And we went from an era before terrorism to an era where we worried about terrorism, that became kind of our paramount concern for a couple of decades. And yeah, it's it's a national story and it still holds a lot of interest for a lot of people. So I definitely wanted to try to hit that anniversary and I'm glad I was able to do that. Well, I think it's one of those events like where were you when JFK was shot? Where were you when MLK was shot? Where were you when 9-11 happened? You know, and I think that everybody can remember that if they experienced it and were alive and were old enough to know what was happening. And your husband, Billy, he's actually been to my house. My daughter interviewed him at one point when she had a school project, and he went into all sorts of detail about his experience, which it was very fascinating and, you know, scary and frightening. And I felt for you as well as him when I was listening to that story. But the funny part was my other two kids were in the kitchen. Emily and Billy were in the living room. By the time he was done, they were both like standing on the edge of the kitchen listening to the entire story because... It's just one of those things that I think, even though it was 20 years ago, like you said, it doesn't feel that long ago. And it's just one of those stories people just want to talk about. And he's done such a wonderful job of telling his experience to people, you know, making sure those memories stay alive. He was on the front page of the Chronicle this year with 9-11. And so I'm sure it is a very personal story for both of you. 
Yes, it is. And we actually experienced it as a very personal story. And it took me a while to kind of absorb it as a as national international news, because when you go through something like that, and I thought for a couple of hours that my husband was dead, or I didn't know what had happened to him, I watched his building go down on a pub and on the on a TV in a pub in London. And I didn't know what had happened to him. And, and, you know, I could have cared less about what was going on in the country or the nation or um, you know, internationally at that time, it was to me a very personal story. This is happening to me. Then, you know, the relief of finding out that he's okay. And then kind of coming out of that space of a personal tragedy into like the whole world was affected by this. It took kind of a while to kind of absorb it in that way. But yeah, it was a very personal story to us and continues to be. And I wondered as you were writing some of that, was it cathartic? Did it bring back a lot of memories? Did it cause you to have kind of dreams where you were back in that time period? I mean, how was that for you? It was. There were many moments where I was sitting in front of the computer with tears just streaming down my face, especially I would say writing the prologue. That was the most difficult chapter to write. It was challenging from a research perspective because I really felt like I owed it to everybody involved, everybody who was impacted, the victims especially, to get it right, to get all the details right, to get it as close to accurate as I possibly could. So during that chapter, which which actually I started with, this book started in September of two, or yeah, September of 2015, and that's Daniel's story is the one that grabbed me, and his story is the story I first started writing, even though most of the book is Aaron's story. But writing that chapter was incredibly difficult. And I do remember periods at the computer, especially where where Erin would hit rock bottom, which she did a couple of times, um, where she's lying face down at ground zero and kind of anoints her forehead with the ashes from the site. A lot of those scenes really got me as I was writing them. But that said, it's really hard to take it in as as a reader. It's very hard for writers to ever know what it's like to read their work. And I can't really process it that way. So it's very interesting. It's been very interesting to me to hear all these accounts of people I don't know and how they read it and how it impacted them. It's been really fascinating to see it from that point of view. I bet so, because that's an interesting point that you can write it and know what you're feeling, but you're not sure how people are going to interpret it. Absolutely. And, you know, everybody interprets everything differently. Given any set of facts, there will be different interpretations, right, based on the lens of the person who is viewing them. But especially that's the case with like a a creator, like a writer, an artist, a musician, and the audience. I watched a documentary on Pink Floyd, a band that I absolutely love, but it was like a documentary from 2003. And I was just watching it one night on Netflix, but David Gilmour said he will never be able, and they were talking about Dark Side of the Moon. It was all about Dark Side of the Moon. He said, I will never be able to put on the headphones and listen to that album from start to finish like a listener would, because he knows so much about every song. He knows all the detail behind it. He knows, he knows too much. And it took him so long to put it together. And he was kind of expressing remorse that he'd never be able to experience it that way, just as a as a novice, um, as a blank slate. And I, I kind of feel the same way about my book. I wish I could just pick it up and read it as a reader. That's such a fascinating idea to have that idea of you taking your book, reading it as a novice, not thinking about everything that went into it. Because 
not only would you be thinking, oh, it took me so long to write this chapter or, oh, this part of Aaron's story really got to me, but also you're probably critiquing it the whole time. Oh, I would do this differently now. Or I don't know, it would be really hard, I think, to just come in new like that. Yes, absolutely. You're critiquing it. And then you're kind of like, what was I thinking here? And then also you get fatigued from reading the same words over and over. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've read the words in this book. And each and every word is there for a reason. David Mitchell said that in one of the talks that I attended. And I, it was before I got kind of gone through the extensive revision process of a novel, but he said, each word, every single word in my novels is there for a reason. And I thought, there's got to be a few words that aren't. You know? <laughs> but after you write a book and you go through so many stages of edits, it's true. Every single word is there for a reason, but also you get fatigued from reading them and you just, your eyes start to glaze over after a while. It's just a very different experience. But yeah, it fascinates me. Well, I even find as a writer of articles, like if I am rereading and rereading and rereading an article, at some point, my brain just stops reading it because I know, I feel like I know it already. You just kind of also lose track a little bit, I think. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and also, you can't edit it that way. You can't edit work that you've looked at a thousand times right. by just looking at, <laughs> looking at it again. You have to listen to it. You have to take it in in a different way to trigger your brain in a different way to really pay attention. And put it away for a while and then come back to it. Yes. It, oh, yes. That helps. That helps a lot. But if if writers could read their work the way a reader would, there'd be a lot. It'd be a lot easier to be a writer. I was put it that way because it's really hard to and the things that are so important about a novel, like pacing and character development, and it's all in your head, and it doesn't always come out on the paper that way. But it always works in your in your brain. <laughs> Well, and you're so familiar with it. You know, it's so personal too. So I think it's hard to kind of view something through an impersonal lens because it's your story. Yes. Yes, exactly. It It is. And it is also, you know, you're also battling the demons of I'm not good enough. I'm an imposter. What am I thinking trying to write a book? I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not wise enough. You know, all of those thoughts are coming in at the same time as well, which of course as a reader of somebody who's published a book, you're just taking it all in, in a pure sense. You know that the book has been through everything you've just described. So you know that it's polished and all of that. But you participated as a mentee in Pitch Wars, didn't you? I did a long time ago. That was in 2016. So what was that like? It was a really great experience. It was intense. My mentor was Laura Heffernan, who I adore. She's amazing. And she actually blurred this book. She really fell in love with it, really loved Aaron's story. And it was, you know, from, from September through November of 2016. So this was after actually you read. <laughs> That's how early your version was, because I think you read it in like May 2016. It was just an intense process of revision, revision, revision. It's like basically all I did for those few months. And it was incredible. And I actually got an agent out of it in uh, in March of 2017. So I can't say enough good things about Pitch Wars. It's amazing. And it's lovely that these published and agented writers are willing to kind of give their time and effort to kind of help other struggling writers hone their craft and make it in the writing world, which is very difficult. So it's an amazing program. It does seem like that. I just love talking with people that have both been mentees and mentors because it seems like it's incredibly worthwhile. 
It's incredibly worthwhile. It gives you a lot of exposure to agents, of course, which is, you know, the whole point. And it's, it's going to be difficult going through that process. It's, it's like killing your babies and getting your story. And, but it's so educational and it's so, and, and, you know, these, these mentors are doing it for free. It's like editing services that you would pay thousands of dollars for. And they're, and they're doing it for free because they really want to help the community and they really believe in your book. And yeah, it's an incredible program. So then what happened with your publishing journey after that? Yeah, it's kind of a sad, long, woe-begone tale. So I did. I got an agent. She loved the book. This is in March of 2017. So we're talking like four years ago. Um, she loved the book, but she wanted me to make it bigger. And she was with a big New York literary agency. And I kind of like, I bought into her vision. I thought I can really make this great. I brought in a new character named Rosie. She was the 911 dispatcher who took Daniel's last call and kind of took out a lot of Aaron's story, which was probably good for another reason. But I kind of gutted Aaron's story and brought in in Rosie's character, and I interwove their narratives and kind of retrofit Rosie into the story. And a year later, it took me a year to go through all those edits, and it was a painful process. You know, she advised me through the whole thing. And then we got to spring of 2018, where I was finished. The revisions were polished. We were ready to go out on sub. She was excited about it. And then she left her agency and contractually couldn't take me with her. So that was very difficult to swallow. And I worked really hard to try to get another agent for a while. And then I hired a professional editor to look at the new revised manuscript with Rosie in it. And she pointed out some flaws that were probably preventing me from getting an agent. And so one night in the bathtub, I had a revelation. I was at a crossroads over what to do with the book. And I had a revelation that I needed to take it back to where it was before I got the agent. And I needed to keep Aaron's story, Aaron's story, that it was okay. It didn't need to be bigger. It was good as it was. And that's how it was intended to be. And so I did that. So, so these, these breaking the book apart and making, making it Aaron's story and then creating a new book for Rosie, which I also did, which we can talk about later. That'll be my next book to, to be published. It really fixed the problems that the editor had pointed out with the manuscript. And it was really the right thing to do. But then suddenly I had two books. So. <laughs> Uh, and I wanted to put Aaron's story out there first because of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I felt like it was an important story at the right time. So then you tried to find an agent again. I remember actually you and I ran into each other at the ball fields, I think around the time that was all happening. And I just remember thinking, that's terrible luck. And I felt so bad for you because I knew you'd been working on it for so long. Yeah. So then you have the two manuscripts and you then pitch them to agents again? Yes, I did. Well, I didn't pitch... Aaron's story to agents again. I actually just went straight to publishers with Aaron's story and she writes press picked it up. Yes. Perfect. And I've been so busy publishing this story that I just honestly haven't had time to go out and look for another agent. So I'm currently unagented and I do have Rosie's story as a, it's, it's a pretty complete manuscript. It, it is now a braided narrative with Rosie and her, and her mother, Mary, who's a Welsh housewife who got stuck in Staten Island. She's a 1970s housewife. So it goes back in time to Mary's story and inter- intercuts with Rosie's story in 2000. And she's a, she's a 911 dispatcher in New York. So it's fun to kind of 
have her character in both books. I mean, she has very brief cameos in paper airplanes, but it's fun that she's there. And I think I'll do that with all my books, have little, you know, character cameos from my other books. Little Easter eggs is what I love when I hear authors call them that. Yes. Little Easter eggs to the people who have read the other books. It's like, oh, I know who that person is. And it so they can say, I recognize Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But this is all Rosie's story. And actually, I adore Rosie and I adore her mother, Mary, possibly even more. And Rosie's mother, Mary, dies when she's 10. And so this is Rosie's exploration of what happened to her mother because she really doesn't know how she died. And so it's her trying to figure out what happened to her mother. Oh, that sounds really good. I hope so. (laughs) I'm sure it will be. So you mentioned three writing groups in your acknowledgments. That's a lot of writing groups. How does that work for you? I know. I have had three. So some of them are kind of like defunct, but I'm still very good friends with everyone in them. So my first writing group was Chris Kander, David Eagleman, and Sarah Blute. And I think you probably know Chris as well. I don't know if you know David. But Sarah and I went to college together. So we've known each other forever. And and she introduced me to Chris Kander, actually. So that's that connection. And we were actually sitting in a park in 2009, watching our boys play. They were about three years old at the time. And we just, we started talking about the bird flu. I think it was bird flu in 2009. That was the latest pandemic. And (laughs) it was nothing compared to what we've dealt with recently, obviously. But we were talking about, and Sarah is a microbiologist, just a PhD badass, basically. And she was talking about envelope versus non-envelope viruses. And we just got talking about viruses and bacteria. And we were watching our kids play. And we decided we were going to write a screenplay called Germs. And so the three of us set out to do that, really having never written a screenplay before. Chris and I were both kind of struggling writers. And we got a draft that was probably not very good and sent it to David Eagleman, who's a friend of mine from college, and said, hey, do you, and he had studied script writing, actually, in undergrad. And he's an, he's an amazing, like, you know, Renaissance man. He, like, knows so much about everything. He's a neuroscientist, and he's an entrepreneur, and he also knows how to write books and screenplays. So he, he read it and he loved it so much, despite probably how raw and rough it was, that he wanted to be a part of it. So that's how that writing group got formed. Got it. And we did finish writing Germs and we're still trying to sell it. And David is actually starting a production, like a science production company. So hopefully that might happen one day. I'm still crossing my fingers on that one. And then after that, Chris met Cameron Hammond and um, we know Mark Haber from Brazos Bookstore. And so the four of us kind of formed a writer's group and the intent was not necessarily to critique each other's work, but to get together, talk about it, and then read our work out loud because that is such an important skill for a writer to go, to be able to read their own work. And so we did that for a while. COVID kind of shut us down on that, but we're still, we're going to get back together in person one of these days. We did some Zoom calls, but so the four of us are all local writers and they're the three of them, their work is so amazing. I mean, you know how good uh, of a writer Chris Kander is. And then I don't know if you've read Mark Haber's work, Reinhardt's Garden, but it was um, it was nominated for a very important prize, which I can't remember right now, but it'll come to me. 
And then Cameron wrote a fabulous memoir. So, I mean, I'm in awe of the people in my writer's group. And then my third one was, is a virtual one. And I've never actually met any of the people in person, but I adore them all. We actually just met last night. And it was started through the writer's barn in Austin, who brings a lot of writers together from all over the country, not just Texas. And I met some people there. And then through that experience, I got introduced to Carrie Jones, who also, she's a New York Times bestselling author. She also blurbed my book and she's amazing. I love Carrie Jones. Can't say enough good things about her. But we were all in an online writing course with her. And then this writing group kind of split off from that main writing group. Got it. And so what's the focus of this writing group? So this writing group, we do actually read each other's work about 20 pages each month and each. Um, so it's a, it's a more of a traditional writer's critique group where we read the work and then each person has a meeting uh, devoted to their work. So last night we were discussing the work of Sarah Orman. She uh, lives in Austin. Three of the people in my group live in Austin and I still haven't met them. I really need to get to Austin to meet these wonderful, amazing writers and people. But Sarah's work, she's writing a memoir and it's absolutely gorgeous I, we talked about it last night and I was bowled over. I was like, I told her, you need to get an agent. You need to publish this because it's amazing. So a lot of very talented writers in that group. And I think memoirs seem like they're definitely having a boom right now. They are absolutely having a boom right now. It's incredible. Everybody is writing a memoir. I feel like I need to write one. <laughs> I feel like everybody's writing a book. You know, I, I get an email like every other day. My friend is writing a book and I'm sure you're going to want to see it. I'm like, everyone is writing a book. Which is great. I mean, it's wonderful, but it is pretty funny. Like when I started with all this, I just had no idea how many people were writing books. I know. Everybody says, I think I've got a book in me. And I'm like, get it out. (laughs) I know I don't have a book in me, so (laughs) I can be the lone wolf. But you are such a great book supporter and champion. So, And I love doing that. So that works well for me. But what about the title? How did you come up with the title for this one? I don't actually know how I came up with the title. Well, I do know how I came up with the title. The title is based on how Daniel and Aaron first met and then how Daniel asked Aaron to marry him. So they were studying in college and he is a, I don't really know how to, if there's a word for this, but he's like a master paper airplane creator. Enthusiast. (laughs) Enthusiast. And so he's made paper airplanes all of his life and he folds a paper airplane and sends it sailing, lights it on fire and sends it sailing because it's just kind of, he's kind of fun and quirky like that. And it burns Aaron's hand when she tries to catch it. And that's how they met. And I don't know how that scene came to me. I think actually the scene where he proposes to her with a paper airplane came first. And that is chapter one. And then it just seemed really appropriate because of the, obviously the, the symbolism of the airplane obviously is easy to identify. But the other reason, which kind of, I have to admit, came to me later, but when the plane went into the building, we all remember those horrific images. It seemed like to me, what was so remarkable is in addition to the fire and the smoke that came out, paper came out. Like the streets were just littered with paper that just rained down onto the streets of New York and it just floated down. And I remember when I saw the paper, especially like at the museum, my husband and I went to the museum in September of 2015. And that was the trip that kind of prompted this book. 
I remember seeing all the paper and all the artifacts. And when I saw the paper like floating down from the buildings, I thought, what a tragedy that people can't float down like paper can. That's interesting. And I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it because that is one of the things that I always connect with 9-11 from watching it on TV is after the planes hit, before the buildings started coming down, there was paper everywhere. I mean, the whole sky looked like it was literally raining paper. Yes. It was. It was like the plane went in and paper came out. Yeah. So that's interesting. So that really does kind of give your story an added level of meaning with the title. I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? Yes. Oh, I'm in the middle of reading something amazing that I'm so excited about called The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. And I'm a member of Inprint. I don't know if you go to the Inprint lectures, but I do their, you know, golden ticket every year to go hear authors speak. And I'm actually on the board of Imprint as well. It's a fabulous organization that they, with this subscriber, with the subscriber pass, they sent me this book. It's called The Book of Form and Emptiness. And it's just enchanting and delightful. Her writing is so amazing. And it's, it explores our relationship with things, but in this story that things have voices and they speak to this character and it's, it's so inventive and creative because I've never seen this in a book before, but she has the characters speaking to the book and the book speaking back to the characters, like the characters telling the book what it should be doing. And then the book is talking back and saying, well, that's not what a book does. I love the cover on that one. I keep seeing it recently and probably from the imprint newsletters. I have been to their gala a couple of times. I've actually only listened in on a couple of the events, but I always feel like, oh, I need to do that because they bring in wonderful people. You absolutely need to do it. They bring in amazing people and there's like, you know, signings at the end and there's um, some cocktail parties and stuff like that where you can network with some of the people they bring in. It's just a really fabulous organization and they support writers in the U of H writing program. They give away a lot of scholarships every year. So it all goes to a good cause. And then they also sent me Lauren Groff Matrix and I adore Lauren Groff. She I met her at a at a writer's workshop that I went to, the Napa Valley Writers Workshop, where she was on the faculty and had a really great conversation with her. And I loved Fates and Furies. I felt it was she's a really strong, really creative, really powerful writer. So I'm excited to read her latest, which is Matrix. And then, of course, Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr. I, I'm one of the millions of people in the world who absolutely loved All the Light We Cannot See. So I'm really looking forward to digging into that one, which just came out, I think, last week. That's right. And I'm about a third of the way through it. And it is really interesting. I'm not to the point where everything's kind of connected up yet. So it's a little, you know, discombobulating because you're not exactly sure what's going on. But his writing is beautiful. And everybody says, just keep going. Yes, yes. Okay, that's good to know because I haven't really heard anything about it. His writing is amazing. He actually came through with Imprint a few years ago. I want to say like three years ago. And sometimes these authors will do workshops at U of H. So they'll do a workshop earlier in the day and then they have their reading at night. And so Chris Kander and I actually went to his workshop. And it's a like intimate setting and you get to ask questions. And he, first of all, he's just a delightful human being. He's, he's very modest and he's, he just, I really liked him. I liked his energy and I don't remember obviously everything that he said, but I do remember the way he talked about using words and not using cliches. And I'm totally going to slaughter what he said in the way he said it, but it was memorable to me as a writer because he basically said like, 
think of the way you would write something and then take like every word in there and rethink it and think of a, of a word that's more interesting, that's more evocative. That it's kind of like vivid verbs. <laughs> you know, like basically his example was the car hood gleamed in the sunlight. And he's like, think of a better word for gleamed. And I can't remember what he said, but it has made me think through every single sentence I ever write and it makes it better. I like that because I was just recently reading a book and they were using so many common cliches and it kept pulling me out of the story because I would just get kind of annoyed. <laughs> I was like, oh, but that's just such a trite expression. Like it's probably something we'd say when we were talking and not think twice about it. But in the book, it was bugging me. So I think that that is wonderful advice. It's really great advice. And I, and I used to fight against it a little bit and say, like you just said, everybody uses these words in common language. We all know what they mean. So why can't I use them in my book? But it's true that it it's the reader just isn't engaged in the material if it's something that they already know and their eyes just kind of glaze over cliches and so they don't really hit home. And so it is much more powerful when you when you think beyond what your first instinct is. And I think this goes towards anything, not just writing. I think you take your first instinct, you write it down, and then you rethink it one, two, three, four, maybe five times. And maybe you go with the fifth idea because that's going to be a much better idea than the first idea. It kind of grows from that first idea. You know, it grows from the first idea, but it kind of changes into something else by the time you're on idea five. Yeah. So if you really want to dig deep, that's how to dig deep is just keep going. Rethink it. Always second guess yourself. Always second guess everything. I think that's good advice for life. Second guess everything you're being told. Second guess everything that you're doing and especially where it really matters and you really want to get through to your audience. It's it's really important to just dig deep and show them something unique and original. I think that's right. And maybe the originality is partly what throws it off when you're using an expression that people are so often using. You're thinking, couldn't they have just taken a minute and transformed that into something a little more creative? And which is exactly what you're saying and what you're saying Dora said, that maybe that's the idea that it's just kind of the easy way out. Yes, exactly. And every time you use the word gleam, I think, oh, I can't use that. That's hilarious. <laughs> Well, I am just thrilled to pieces, Toby, that your book has made it out into the world. And I'm really very happy we got to speak. And thanks for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Me too, Cindy. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, that's a hard no about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, 
parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.